0: Well, hello and welcome to the HOW Shift podcast. This is episode 12, Processing Faces and Voices. I'm Katie Irving. I'm the global head of behavioral science here at HOW Shift, and I'm your host for today's podcast. And today we're joined by two very special voices who are going to be telling us a bit about how we process faces and voices on today's podcast and these are both members of the HRW shift team but neither of which have you heard on the podcast before so very excited to welcome their voices and their dulcet tones to our airwaves. The first one is Iona so Iona say hello to the audience and give us a little intro.
1: Thank you Katie. Hello everyone. Really excited to be doing the podcast today. I'm Iona And a bit about me, Uh, my background is mainly in psychology. I did an undergraduate degree in psychology at Plymouth University, and as part of that degree, I did a year's work placement working with individuals with neurodegenerative disorders. Um, And as we'll come on to another discussion, my final year project was largely around face processing. So that's what we'll talk about today.
0: Great. Welcome aboard, Iona. Thank you. We're also joined by Leah, who has also recently joined the HRW Shift team. Why don't you say hello to the listeners, Leah?
2: Hi. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I also studied an undergraduate degree in psychology, in which one of my uh, main areas of study in my last year was voice processing. And particularly um, it was voice recognition. I then went on to study a master's degree in forensic psychology. Where I was able to learn about the um, influence of what we know from psychological research on police and criminal proceedings and so that's my main academic background.
0: Great thank you Leah and it's so great to have the two of you on the podcast today and this is just such a happy circumstance that you both are members of the H O W shift team and we found this crazy coincidence that you both have looked at the way in which the brain processes the human stimuli that we run into in everyday life so this should be a fun discussion so i guess we'll start with faces so iona i'll hand it over to you to tell us a little bit about what you learned about face processing
1: Yeah, so as I mentioned briefly in the intro, I did my final year um, focusing on face processing. And what my main focus was actually on was investigating the role of holistic information in processing specifically the sex of a face. And I'll start off with a bit more of a, a broader covering of what holistic information is, as it's very central to how we process faces. But to start off, it's just key to reiterate that the human face conveys a vast amount of information to a perceiver. And it is considered quite widely the primary and most widely used source to a person's identity. But on top of this, the face also enables the deduction of what we call identity independent visually derived facial information, which is quite a mouthful. (laughs) But... That is essentially the judgments that are dependent upon physical features of the face rather than the more semantic, meaningful information that tells us more about who that person is. Uh, So examples of this identity independent information are things like mood or age or ethnicity and, as I found, sex. So going back to that point about holistic processing, what I've mentioned here is that we we're very comfortable with faces, we're very good as a human species, we're experts in recognizing faces and looking at them and processing them. But when the ability to look at a face as a unified whole is disruptive, for example, if we combine the top half of the face with a bottom half that isn't, doesn't belong to that initial face of somebody else, that ability completely <laughs> completely disappears. Well, not disappears, but really <laughs> takes a turn. And that disruption is what led us to understand this holistic processing. And so when I refer to holistic processing, it basically just means that we are looking at face as a whole rather than individual features. And going off the back of that, research has since found that holistic processing has been used for things like facial expressions, race and sex. So that's the general way that we process faces.
0: So are you saying that if you took my eyes and combined yeah. them with your mouth and we could show them to people that we each know and they might not be able to recognize our composite face because they don't process those individual elements? They just process the whole thing?
1: Exactly. So although they might be able to get there eventually, they, there would definitely be a delay. And that's what my research actually looked at. I looked, I combined faces of celebrities together and I found that in general, identifying the celebrities was a lot slower when they were mismatched faces that were combined. Um, and then I took that one step further to look at whether combining two female faces that were different compared to two different faces that were of the opposite sex to see whether the fact that it was the same sex and unified disrupted it even more um, and found that they were even slower doing that which suggests that these holistic processes are used for processing the sex of a face because sex is processed as a whole so when the faces of two same-sex individuals are aligned they interfered with one another
0: so are you (laughs) saying that if you took a a male mouth and a female eyes yes they were better able to actually recognize the individual components than if you took female eyes and a female mouth so they were better able to distinguish the recognizable components of a face if they were mismatched?
1: Yeah that's exactly right so because they were both female we were processing it holistically and it took longer because they were interfering so when it's male and female we don't look at it as a whole so it's easier to identify which one is which.
0: Wow that's That's so interesting. And it relates to a thing I've been reading recently, which has talked about some of the difficulties in face recognition of people of other races, that the kind of biases that we have that are quite inherent in the way we process faces when we recognize them as another race means that we're processing them in less detail and less activating fewer recognition centers in the brain. And so it sounds like maybe there's something stereotypically similar happening when there is a stereotypically female face feature that the overwhelming process recognizes female and that there's something inhibitory (laughs) that's happening there with the brain that says, "Okay, this is a female and now I need to try and recognize it as a whole rather than this face doesn't make sense. Let me dissect it a little bit.
1: Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And I guess to shift on to maybe a more sort of a real world example we hear about people that are potentially these super recognizers um who are really really good at recognizing faces and you kind of see them in crime dramas that they're used and brought in by the police um and just to touch briefly on that i did a little bit of work around a um condition called Prospagnosia. and that's kind of like these are people that lie at the other end of the spectrum that can't Actually process faces at all despite um, having normal vision, um, no brain damage, or any other cognitive deficits and there's actually been quite a bit of research comparing people who claim they are these super recognizers to people with prosopagnosia. and it did actually highlight that there is a there is there are a group of people that are particularly good at recognizing faces, and quite often the way that we we test that is to invert faces and show it to these super recognizers and they have a larger inversion effect so that is they find it even harder than somebody who isn't a super recognizer to recognize an inverted face what
0: what is an inversion effect
1: so an inversion effect is when you take a face and just turn it upside down and you see that human's ability to process faces just completely disrupts we really can't do it And that was a really key test in showing that we rely on this unified whole, we rely on looking at the face as a whole to process it. So the fact that super recognizers uh, find this an even more disrupting task just shows they are even better at processing faces when they are upright and a whole compared to just normal people.
0: Yeah, I mean it's really interesting to imagine the way that we do that, and I think we maybe all experience some degree of this kind of inability to recognize something when you know a face is upside down or um, otherwise slightly distorted, um, or you know in fun houses where you see those fun house mirrors. So it's really interesting to realize that it is more of a, a spectrum and in, an inability that people have different levels of that they might be in that kind of face blindness um corner or they might be more towards the super recognizers
1: yeah definitely and i think um i'll pass over to leah in a second but one thing i just wanted to highlight was that this holistic processing is really what is behind human's sort of super ability to recognize faces you hear about effects of people seeing um seeing faces in objects that aren't aren't actually a face and that just really shows how how much we are we are primed naturally to seek faces and that we're so familiar and they're really easy to process um and I think Leah will talk a bit about the role of voice processing in ident- identifying a person but from my perspective I would argue not to not to completely dismiss voices that faces are at the core of that
2: Yeah um, actually I would completely agree with you about that. Um, So when you're looking at face and voice processing um, these are tasks that we're doing for pretty much similar reasons. Um, So the auditory face model would say that as well as faces we use voices to process identity um, of a person, uh, also the content of what they're saying and also emotion. But even though these tasks are done in different areas of the brain, they're done separately. Um, There's been fMRI studies that have shown that whereas the fusiform face area is a separate area of the brain for face processing, the voice, uh, voice processing pathway has its own area of the brain, which is the temporal voice area. So they've been identified in different parts of the brain that are working to do these, but they don't do them entirely alone. So um, when you have the, the input of the voices and faces, these can be put together in our brain to sort of perceive what we're experiencing. So you've got, for example, there was the McGurk effect, which was showing that when we are perceiving the content of voices, we are not only hearing it, but we're also using visual input from faces. So the McGurk effect is um, something that happens when somebody is listening um, to a person's voice and looking at their face. And uh, in this one they used a sound that was um, it, it was the sound ba ba ba. And when you looked at the person's face that was also making the the right shapes for that ba, ba ba so were sort of pu- putting their lips together and creating that sound, then they heard that sound. But if they saw the teeth on the lower lip, and they were able to, um, you know, see that while they're hearing ba ba ba, they actually heard a different sound. They heard fa 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 with kind of an F sound. Um, and this was evidence um, that actually the the things that we're seeing a, a person's face do actually do uh, it kind of interferes with um, with the voice processing, or it kind of feeds in and it um, it can distort what we're thinking that we're hearing. So um, they are processed uh, separately, but also there are links between them. And like Iona said, uh, voices are also used for um, perceiving the identity of a person. But um, just like you said, Iona, uh, voices are really not the, the strongest pathway for this. Um, so you were saying that uh, there are you know, so-called super recognisers, and these people are you know um, singled out for, for their amazing abilities of recognizing people. Um, but actually, just in general, um, we as human beings are just hard hardwired to, um to recognise people from their faces. So much so that we can do it after amazing delays. There's research to say that there were participants who, after 15 years, could still recognise uh, people and, and identify them from their yearbook photos. So they could say, oh yeah, I remember that person, even if they hadn't spoken to them in those 15 years. Um, So that's how strongly we can we can use those facial cues to to identify a person.
0: Wow, that's incredible. I've noticed that actually with my yearbook cohort that looking back at at photos, I recognize people that I didn't even remember. I I don't often remember their names, but I'm like, oh, yes, I recognize that person. So I can understand that that even after all that time, you can see photos and go, oh, yes, recognition. There's something still glimmering in the back of your mind. I mean, even
2: if they haven't seen the person in 15 years, but um, looking at voice recognition, you can see a really big contrast there because um, voice recognition, actually the accuracy of that decreases within even uh, one week, three weeks. Um, it significantly decreases. So um, the, the weakness of voice recognition is is really been shown up in, in studies time and time again. Um, and this is definitely a problem for you know, uh, police procedures. For example, um, people always think of eyewitness testimony, but I'm not sure if many people know of ear witness testimony. This is what we call voice recognition um, for, um, you know, court cases and, um, you know, recognising people who've committed crimes. So um, there is such a thing as ear witness testimony. um, But because voice recognition has been found to be, um, you know, relatively a lot weaker than face recognition, um, we have to caution people. So there's something called the Turnbull direction that's given in courts already for, for um, eyewitness testimony. And it's also given in, in cases where there's um, voice recognition or ear witness testimony just to let the jury know the potential problems for reliability. So, for example, as we've talked about delay, if there's a long delay, then the, the judge will tell the jury, well, you know, you've got to consider this, you know, is this um, reliable? Make that consideration. So it's clear that um, voice recognition is much weaker than face recognition and you kind of wonder well, why is that? Why is that pathway relatively weaker for doing this task? And actually it's probably related to the the strength of face processing for personal identification. There's something called the facial overshadowing effect and this means that when you ask someone to recognise a person from their voice It's actually much easier for them to do this if they only heard the person's voice at the first encounter and didn't see their face. So just the presence of a person's face in that first encounter seems to hinder people's ability to recognise a person from their voice alone. It seems like if we have that face of a person, our brain is registering that and saying, oh, there's a face. We'll just recognise them from their face then. Um, And this actually happens even if someone is told, to just focus in on the voice specifically and not the person's face. There's still that disadvantage then when they later try to recognize that person from their voice alone. So it seems like, yeah, we have a involuntary preference there for identifying people by their faces and not their voices. Okay, so if the face processing pathway is prioritising recognising people or identifying people, then is there a priority of the voice pathway? Is it doing something else? Well, that seems to be what's happening. So earlier I said that the voice pathway is doing doing different things. So it's looking for identity. It's also helping us to establish the content of speech and emotion. Well, instead of prioritising identity, It seems that the voice pathway instead is prioritising that content, the content of what people are saying. Now, again, research has been done to kind of evidence this. So there's uh, something called the language familiarity effect, which evidences this. So the language familiarity effect shows that um, when we're trying to recognise voices, that task becomes quite a lot harder if that voice is in a different accent. For example, uh, um, the research I'm thinking of was Thompson 1987, and they asked English speakers, to listen to a voice either speaking English with an English accent, or um, speaking Spanish, uh, or speaking English with a Spanish accent. The recognition was actually easier when it was the speaker speaking English, and when the English speakers were listening. It was more difficult when the English speakers were um, trying to recognise that voice speaking in a Spanish accent, and it was even more difficult if they asked them to recognise the voice and they were speaking in Spanish, a completely um, unfamiliar language to them. So it sounds like, OK, as the content is getting more difficult to understand, the, the voice pathway is just focusing in on, on its job to establish the content and the recognition then gets it falls to the wayside. So uh, the priority is content then. Um, what about emotion? So when we think of um, processing emotions, a lot of people, they they think of facial expressions. So you've got a lot of research that's looked into that. You know, what can we get from facial expressions? Are facial expressions of emotion and universal? And um, so there's been lots of work on that. But recently, people have focused in on, well, what about voices for processing emotion? They've actually found that, yeah, voices are processed quite well for establishing people's emotions. And um, so you've got research to show that, you know, as well as the basic, well-studied emotions like sadness or anger, um, we can actually also distinguish 22 distinct emotions from voices, including things like or um, an embarrassment. And also it seems that voice communication is something that we're able to make quite accurate empathetic judgments from. And um, so just presenting somebody with voices and asking them to judge the emotions from them um, they're more accurate at doing that, um, you know, presented with only voice recordings, um, than when they're watching, say, video recorded interactions without any audio. Um, so more work needs to be done in, in that area, but it does give an indication that voice processing might be quite important, um, you know, for us in perceiving other people's emotions, um, you know, and, and also, um, although we like to think that we're we're really good at processing emotions from facial expressions. It seems that we actually tend to overestimate how good we are at that. Um, Research has shown that putting ourselves in the shoes of another person or um, perspective taking is actually uh, a more successful way of making accurate empathetic judgments than just viewing their facial expressions. Um, And also it it apparently gives no advantage either to provide a person's facial expressions to someone who's making that kind of an empathetic judgment um, from perspective taking. And so maybe we're actually not as adept at judging people's emotions from their facial expressions than, than we think
0: we are. That is just so amazing. And I just I love hearing about this kind of stuff because it's incredible the way that the different regions of the mind that are associated with processing faces and processing voices knit that together in real time for us to recognize people to process what emotions they might be experiencing to have empathy for them whether we recognize them or not you know like it's just it's incredible um, the way in which that works within the human mind and Uh, This is also, you know, interesting on so many levels, but there are a few kind of implications for us in the healthcare market research space and how we operate with our um, pharmaceutical and healthcare business partners. The first, I suppose, is to think about the way in which we analyze market research interviews. So we've, for a long time at HRW, really um, been advocates for the importance of analyzing things holistically. So not just looking at what they say, but also kind of how they say that and using where, they, where, where they're they accurate, which is a whole other podcast in itself, but using tools like facial coding or sentiment analysis that's possible through voice processing to try and identify what emotions are leaking through in the way in which people are using their faces and voices when they're communicating information to us. The other potential implication for us in healthcare market research is around compliance. So we know from the BHBIA and ephemera guidelines that we adhere to that from a compliance perspective, voice and face can be considered personally recognisable data. And I think, unfortunately, um, because it is sometimes difficult, but this this These perspectives that Iona and Leah have put forward really support how recognisable people can be, especially if we've got small universes of healthcare professionals or patients where their voice or their face may be recognisable to other people. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, their their face is probably more than their voices, um, as we seem to be a little bit more adept at recognising people from their face than from their voice.
0: Yeah, great point. And speaking of of faces as well, uh, I think a lot of brands recognize that often their best ambassador is something to do with people. Um, So making sure that when your brand is represented by people, that you're giving your brand faces and voices uh, that are then more recognizable to people. And Iona talked a little bit about the power of faces to draw attention or pareidolia, where people see faces or see patterns that look like faces in in lots of spaces. So we've seen that a lot in concept testing research and anything that has a face tends to draw the eye a lot more powerfully than concepts or images that don't have faces included in them. And the final kind of implication, I think, is more of a um, COVID-19 time specific one. But um, this is probably a trend that will carry on. But. I think a lot of us can relate to the fact that we've all been on a lot of video conferences recently. And we end up spending our whole day on some kind of Zoom or Teams meeting, meeting with other people. And this really underscores the power of seeing faces as well as hearing voices, even when we're connecting digitally. But there are both benefits and drawbacks of this additional stimulus that we're potentially giving people to process. So if we all turn our videos on as Leah was talking about then maybe we've inhibited our ability to process emotion through the voice um, and maybe we're also focusing less on the content which is the function of the voice.
2: I'm not sure that seeing a face will necessarily interfere with observing someone's emotions from their voice but it's just that I would say for the for the effort of putting on your camera um, and you know making yourself feel a bit uncomfortable sometimes maybe you're not getting so much in terms of content or in terms of emotion but maybe you know you want to keep yourself familiar you want yourself to be recognisable to them and you want to build that rapport maybe in the first couple of calls it might be useful but i would say going forward i would say you're not getting that much just from you know having that extra facial expression but maybe iona will disagree <laughs>
0: Yeah. Um,
1: No, I think um, obviously I'm quite biased because I I worked mainly with faces, but there is all these research around how we we can all recognise these six universal emotions. And I mean, that just basically means that we can identify um, six emotions. I think it's fear, anger, surprise, regardless of what culture or anything we're from. And to me, that just just says that, you know, we, we really do rely on faces for so much, so much more. And just hearing a voice is just something like that almost says there's this like innate driver highlights oh, that faces you really
2: do bring something extra to the table if you like mm. maybe uh, more research needs to be done to convince you <laughs> and then I can comfortably uh go on calls without my camera Yes. Yeah. I'll try I'll start <laughs> no, now. <I'm> not convinced.
0: <laughs> well I think the the takeaway for me is that both of them carry important stimuli and a little sequoia to the the way in which our minds are processing that information and i I i'm maybe a little bit with iona in that i think there's benefit to making sure that the emotion is carried in the way that we intend it to be and and seeing the face can confirm that emotion or overpower if there's some kind of misinterpretation through the way that it's coming through in the voice but But I think we found that actually there's no right answer and there does definitely need to be more research before we know whether or not we should turn on our videos when we join the virtual meetings.
2: Yeah, I'm going to need some coaxing
0: for that. (laughs) (laughs) And that's fair. Great. Well, thank you so much, Leah and Iona, for joining us on the podcast today. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. And we will be back on our next episode with some more delicious HRW Shift content for you. Thanks again.